0: You give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln. Okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black, it's our God. Jesus Christ. Let's turn the tables on you. Amen. Victory! I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of
1: victory. The Lord says it is done.
0: I bet he can't wait to go home and become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge hey good people how y'all doing out there in podcast land it's your boy again this week here we are in December of the year of our Lord 2020. my goodness well hopefully you're doing all right uh seems like this next wave of covid is uh ramping right back up and uh my gosh um yeah this this some, this is is like I've been saying it's some crazy stuff uh I you know I hope you're safe I hope you're doing doing all right and uh looks like we may be at least here in Illinois we may be um going into a second round of you know shelter in place like full lockdown and everything so oh my gosh uh I tell you this is an interesting time to live in I think um I had the privilege of being on two podcasts well one podcast and uh one podcast. Uh it, how could I put it? It was like a workshop slash mini conference uh with Janelle Austin and like Patrick. It, it, I'm gonna I recorded that and so I will put that here on the podcast and um I'll have that uh, for y'all to hear. It was a great uh it was a great time. It was really just intellectually, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a great topic. It was uh social justice in preparation uh, for uh, Jesus's second return, right? Or second coming, right? Uh, so just a topic. Uh, Janelle put this together and she's been on the podcast before. Um, she's doing some great work out in the Twin Cities, of course, with the whole George Floyd thing and Aspects of defunding the police, and uh, she had texted and was just like, "Hey, you interested?" And I just thought she just wanted just participants, like I mean, I I mean, like just you know people to show up. So I was like, "Absolutely, I'm I'm definitely interested." And she's like, "No, I want you to like participate." So I was like, "Oh shoot!" So I recorded that uh, with their permission, and um, I will put that here on the show coming up in a few weeks great subject matter great conversations uh it was on point and then uh my man John Gill dr John Gill who's been on the show several times um has got a podcast on process theology and man he asked some great questions it was just a good time to you know think about process theology of course uh started the season off season five with uh, Dr Monica Coleman who is you know, it kind of, you know, leads a lot of that thought uh, on a black process thought or black process theology. And um, so, uh, yeah, I went on that podcast. So I'll post be posting those links to that. That was a great conversation with him. And uh, just, was just some, you know, good theological thinking in, in regards to what's going on now, where we're at, how we look at uh, particularly Christianity. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm coming... You know closer and closer to is really understanding that there's so much complexity to religion that um you know what what you know what is it to really say this is the only way right for humans and i get that that's uh probably not for this audience profane faith if you've been listening for a while uh you already know we've explored topics like that and you know it's really not a lot of boundaries in fact i'm actually looking for somebody who is into the occult and into uh, you know, either, I, I, what do they call it, white or dark magic? I mean, so I'm I'm, I'm very curious and in uh, and, and talking with somebody. And that's, you know, my own deficit. I don't have anyone in my circle that, uh, the, at least that I know of. I don't know. Somebody may come out and be like, hey, man, this is this, uh, that I like to have a conversation with. So that and along with, I'm working on a few folks uh, to talk about the whole, all the issues and uh, politics surrounding abortion. Oh, yes. So, profane phase we like to go in so yeah but uh going back to what i was saying i don't think that you know if you've been listening for a long time you you already know something like that isn't you know it it isn't a um it isn't a surprise um you know i think uh when we think about religion in the grand scheme of things you know how we process things how we see things i think it's important to keep in mind right you know that the supernatural uh is something that, uh, you know, everyone comes at it in a different way. You know, if if societally we could just understand it that way and uh, embrace that uh, rather than trying to put up all these rules and, you know, prayer in schools and, you know, the reason our nation is this way is because they took this away and then that away and religious liberty, which I'm all for religious liberty, but if we're really going to do religious liberty, it's genuinely religious liberty, not just white conservative evangelical Christianity that only gets to be religious and liberal or have liberty, right? So anyways, um, this week I'm excited. Uh, this, uh, you know, this is, uh, we've had last couple of weeks, we've had some amazing, uh, women just talk about faith and life and hopefully enjoyed last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, had my good friend on Irene and then, And the week before that, I was talking to my good friend, Angie. Um, And so this week I get to talk to Nicole, who I just got a chance to meet via email, Uh, saw her book, and I was like, oh my, I got to get her on the show. I've heard a lot of great things about her, um, and I wanted to get her on the show, and she agreed, and that was great. And so three great weeks of strong women and women of color and women who are you know, changing, at least in my opinion, the theological landscape um moving forward um and i keep saying the decade because i think decades are interesting in what they bring uh at least as a researcher right i am always fascinated to to see just in 10 years what what changes especially you know when you think about census taking uh how those markers change uh belief systems uh, how we look at technology, the relationship of technology, all those things I think speak to just where we're at um, and where we're going. Um, so I think it's important to to again, this is you know just my own just research mind looking at how you know how society processes certain things. So and I think the next ten years, really twenty years, but really in this in, in the immediate you know. Uh, Covid has changed everything, right? We start thinking about small businesses and what that means, especially for POC communities, um, Black communities. Uh, what does it mean that you know Amazon is so big? Um, you know, are what? What does that look like in the in moving into the next ten years? I mean, you know, Bezos has become a quadrillionaire, right? Over the last seven months. Um, and you know, it's at the the reality of it is, is, that you know, not to sound all Marxist and everything, but the people who are working, right, uh, the people who actually do the work for that company, you know, we've we've seen, right, the, the essential workers don't get paid all that. <laughs> we've seen, right, during this this pandemic, that you know, rules can change, things that we thought were in place, you know, can move be moved around. We found that we can also reduce carbon emissions. <laughs> we can reduce pollution. Um, so there's a lot of different things that I think this pandemic brought up in regards of what we can do, but what we refuse to do. It always, you know, it what, what I come back to is that at the end of the day, yes, there are laws, there are rules, but these are all things that we commit. We're not a part of any galactic society rules that were decided before. They're, these are things that we as humans on this planet decide to do. And we're kind of a scary bunch. I mean, if if I was an alien looking out, I'd be like, man, just and and rightfully so in some cases. Right. When you think about people who've been oppressed, you think about, you know, the distrust of blacks towards whites, of Native Americans towards, you know, our indigenous brothers and sisters and fam that, um, you know, have been ill treated and killed off. I mean, so there is some legitimate distrust. I always just think, man, we we make some of these rules and we can you begin to see just the social constructs being able to meld and change people who say all oh, that we can never do that. Well, now we're doing it. And so COVID has proven a lot of that stuff now. And it's fascinating to look at, you know, especially as it pertains to, of course, religion, faith, how those things intersect uh, with race, gender, socioeconomics. Uh, I feel like we're headed towards a society that is a subscription based society. Uh, <laughs> You know, and uh, the, the premium, right? The premium subscription. There will be those uh, for people that, you know, can afford it. Um, and again, as somebody who looks at some of these patterns, I'm, I'm curious to see what the next 10 years brings you, especially with prices rising dramatically. I went to go buy, uh, went to one of my favorite tool stores, which is Harbor Freight. If you didn't know anything about that. Harbor Freight's great. Uh, they're known for selling, you know, affordable tools and affordable material for the working um for the working class and also the, you know, the trades. Um, and you know, I went in to go buy some gloves the other day and you know, I'm thinking six, seven bucks at most, right? It's just some disposable gloves. Dude, these things was almost $30. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, just time out. $30 for gloves? oh man so it you know and and i think about that as there's a sign up you know in here in illinois we have to pay tolls and stuff and so you know there's tollways and stuff and there's a new sign up at all the tollways you know it's january 1st these things are going up so i just keep thinking like man even with increases in minimum wage even with these different increases the way we're headed is that the very elite right are controlling things and, and and have all the access to stuff um Historically, that hasn't always turned out well, right? When there's a, you know, a distinct uh, difference between the lower class and the upper class. But, uh, you know, we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. My daughter asked me the other day, she's like, you know, are you, dad, are you a half glass uh, empty or half glass full kind of guy? I said, I'm always a half glass, you know, a half glass empty uh, that's just always been my that's my first stance. You can ask my partner Emily; she'll tell you the same thing. She's a uh, a half glasses uh, fool kind of person. So you know, work things out, work things out. Um, but at any rate, like I said, I'll be posting those other conversations. Uh, they're gonna be they're gonna be they could be good. They could be good. I think the, we gotta continue having some of these conversations. And uh, thanks again for folks who are listening in and um, uh, posting some of the stuff. Again, you know. As you come up with thoughts and questions, post them profane faith on whiteodgepodcast.com. You can check them out. All right, let's get on to who y'all really came here to hear and, uh, uh, you know, check out and Nicole Lim. She's a speaker, educator, and consultant on leveraging dignity, which, oh my gosh, this is a restorative. Is she, well, how can I even put it? And she's going to describe it, but it's really helping women come out of the sex trade or the illegal trafficking. It's it's amazing work that she's doing. Uh, and, and she's a consultant on leveraging dignity through the restorative art of storytelling. She's the founder of an international director of Freely in Hope. This is a nonprofit organization, again, dedicated to equipping survivors and advocates to lead in ending sexual violence through uh, their rewritten stories. She has a background in photography and filmmaking, filmmaking, Nicole has been deeply transformed by the powerful, tenacious and awe-inspiring examples of survivors. Uh, She's got a new book out, Liberation is Here. It just came out, go out and check it out. It's about these stories of the women that she's worked with, Um, Amazing book. Had a chance. Again, This that part of the conversation is around that. Uh, She's also a uh, graduate with a degree in film production from Loyola, Marymount, and she's currently pursuing a master's in global leadership from Fuller Theological Seminary, which we talk a little bit about. Uh, Nicole also consults regularly with the international organizations, including the Salvation Army, International Justice Mission, and Hope International. She is a native of the Bay Area, and I knew that right off the bat. As soon as we started talking, I was like, this girl's from bay area i love it i do miss the bay area i do listen i miss california in general but it was great to connect with her uh about that so she's a native of the bay area she can often be found buying african fabric on the streets of nairobi again the book is liberation is here just came out with ivy press check it out this conversation is dope af y'all take care of yourselves here we go Nicole, welcome to Profane Faith. It's great to have you.
1: Thanks for having me, Daniel.
0: Um, Share with the audience a little bit. Um, You know, I I ask everyone the initial question. What's been happening from birth to now? How did you end up to where you're at right now?
1: Oh, man. So Uh, from uh. birth to now, what I think is all of the ancestral lineage lineage of hard um, hard work ethic, Um, passion and love for the community and desire to see a better world is what has translated into who I am today. Um, I think a lot of my cultural upbringing together with the diversity of cultures I've experienced in my work as an international photographer has also helped to expand my worldview that has led me to what I do today. And um, my work now with survivors of sexual violence in Kenya and Zambia continually day by day expands my understanding of who God is and my role in this big, big and terrible, but also beautiful world. Hmm. And um, I'm always trying to learn how else do I contribute with that same amount of work ethic, passion and love. Um, Yeah. So it's like culmination of, I think all of the um, experiences I've had in my life together with my lineage um, and the ways in which my current community of survivors teach me how to live better and live with love in a violent world.
0: How, I'm curious because you have a lot of good irons in the fire. Um, how did you get into photography? And did you know, were you uh, a descendant of the film era or did you hop right into digital? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so my so my grandfather is actually a journalist,
0: Guess and what's up.
1: that story is interesting in where he was a journalist in communist China, and wow. um, he was wrongly accused of speaking against the communist regime, oh, and that put him on the blacklist. And so oh his friend, who was a communist soldier, gave him the tip and said, "Hey, you're on the blacklist to be killed. You have to flee now." Oh my! So he fled. Yeah, so he fled from. China to Hong Kong to Canada to now where we are in the Bay Area Wow! and his work in journalism and writing and also in photography um, has also shaped my worldview of seeing a different perspective than I saw in mainstream media yeah Um, after he had pastored at a church for 35 years in San Francisco he actually went back to China to work with the hill tribes people
0: oh my gosh
1: and he would send me those photos, and so those photos of gorgeous individuals from different tribes, different headdresses, different types of jewelry, different colors that they wore. Um, also, you know, like I said, expanded my worldview of what this big world could what what this big world is beyond what I've experienced personally. So that always transcended with me. And then my mom is, is an artist. Um, and so art has always been really inherent in our in our family culture and what sparked my interest in documentary filmmaking is realizing and recognizing how there was a disparity of how women of color were shown uh-huh. on the media whether it be on the news or in hollywood asian women were only typecasted as either the sexy vixen or the submissive docile house house care worker right so right. Um, seeing those two I know knew that from my bloodline that there was a much larger story that needed to be told and so that's why I got into documentary filmmaking
0: that's that's deep I mean this whole story right I mean that's I'm, I'm assuming your grandfather is he still around is he still present this day
1: he is he's 91 wow
0: Wow, 91. That is <laughs> awesome. Um, I hope to have that kind of longevity uh in life and to see some of those things. Um, and okay, so with that, what how did you get into because I'm curious, and this is I'm asking this both as inquiry and as a professor who is over a media studies program and I have students who are aspiring to become filmmakers. I mean, how does one even get into that? And then you got the international piece. I mean, how does that even happen? I mean, I'm, I'm so wildly curious and just folks origin story as when it comes to something like this.
1: Yeah. So, um, Oh man, there's so many layers to that. Um, you asked earlier if I was at the cusp of like the digital age and I was, so I did learn, um, film, film in film school, um, but obviously that was very expensive, so we only shot our required projects on film. Yeah. When it came to our personal work, and also because I did the documentary track, doing a documentary on film film is just impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, because digital photography was just at the start there, digital filmmaking was really the beginning, um, I was able to shoot my senior thesis in digital. And um, that that was, like, right when the um, digital SLRs came out. Mm. So I was able to travel compactly with a smaller camera, which really helped um, in going to the places that I needed to go for my thesis. I did my thesis in Kenya because wow. we had some mutual friends there that were pastors there. I'm from the Salvation Army denomination. Yes, what's which up? Which is another story. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so all right. With that denomination, we have international relationships with people all around the globe, which was really cool because anywhere I could want to go in the world, we have a friend of a friend of a friend um, who could host me. And so in Kenya, we had really good friends who were um, the leaders there. And I told them, I want to make a film on women who have overcome obstacles and are helping their communities. Who do you know? And immediately um, our friend sent us back these beautiful stories of stories that I've never heard before. And I'm like, why have I never heard stories like this before Mm. of, of incredible resilience and strength and power even in the midst of suffering? And so that's why I went to Kenya to do that film um, for my senior thesis. Um, I had also been doing films for my denomination um, in church. You know, church is the best place to get practicing, you know, (laughs) in in anything. That's the truth. uh, Yeah. And so I had ample platform to make films for anything I wanted to um, at church, which was really helpful to start my career. And then that expanded uh, since I had background w- working with the Salvation Army internationally. I did, also did some work in Skid Row um, and in the Tenderloin with the Salvation Army. Yeah. I was able to use that as reference for other international agencies. And so my r- work grew from working internationally with the Salvation Army to working with other international agencies um, and doing documentary filmmaking, which continued to expand my worldview um, and to expand my my desire to tell a different story.
0: Yeah, That, that's fascinating. I love that. That is, that is, that's good stuff. So speaking of faith, because I'll come back to some of the, one of those questions, but speaking of faith, I mean, how does, how has that informed your life? How has that, you know, guided you? Was there an aha moment for you at some point where you were just like, yes, you know, uh, you know, as the evangelicals say was, were you ever saved? I mean, how has that developed, for you I'm, I'm curious and i'm definitely gonna be leading up to your book but this i'd love i want to i want to hear what you got to say with this
1: yeah i'll answer that i guess prior to some of the things of my book um i think there are multiple savings that happen in in our life of faith i don't think there's one moment where we're saved and sanctified i think it's a growth of saving and being saved from our ego from pride from um from the things that we know it to be, and as our worldview expands, we realize, oh my God, this this world is so much more than than our limited mindset, and that's actually what we're being saved from. Actually, is our limitations that we put on ourselves because we think we're always right. Um, so I think for me, how how my first journey began is um, I grew up in the church, and so doing church work was mm. always. You know, part of our life and our culture, Um, considering my grandfather was a minister and my parents are very involved in the church. Growing up, um, you know, we did all the right things. I did all the things. I like led Bible studies for children when I was a child myself. And so I knew how to do that. Um, But it wasn't until my mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was 14 years old that I really got to understand what sufferings the, the role of suffering plays in faith and how oftentimes in order to recognize your dependence and even the recognition of a good God in a broken world is to experience suffering within yourself. Um, and so that first experience of suffering as a 14-year-old where I, you know, almost lost the person that I loved most dear, uh-huh. where I realized I was holding on to a lot of anger and resentment that kept me from living a full and complete life. Huh. Um, and just realizing um, how um, in in bad things happening, there is still so much goodness to look forward to, right? It's like the, usually the... Um, the common uh, tension for people is like, why do bad things happen to good people? And so in wrestling with that as a 14 year old and, and almost uh, losing my mom to cancer, it was a huge turning point for me because I had to really recognize the suffering so that I could find transformation within myself and to allow my anger to manifest in ways beyond resentment. Um, and so that's where I, I learned that anger was actually a force of, of recognizing my love for people and for the world. The reason why there was anger is because I knew that there was a lot that was not right within the world. Um, and that's why I became angry. And so finding, um, finding love uh, and, and growing in love is what my faith journey started as, If learning how to love in, even in the midst of a broken world.
0: Wow. That's, um, that's deep. That's deep. And so, all right. So you grew up in the church. I like that. And what, uh, you got, you, you have a, a, a huge, right. This event, this, this, you know, this faith event, how have you sustained faith in this era that we find ourselves in? And when I say this era, I really mean, right. The, the shifting of, of culture, societal strains, you know, as we moved into the 21st century, right? I mean, I think about, you know, 9-11 and how that reshaped so much of where we're at now, uh, how we look at life, how we look at, quote-unquote, terrorists, those people who are evil, Mm -hmm. right? How we justify certain acts of violence. Um, 2008, you have, you know, the first black president elected, you know, which pushes in, you know, kind of our first, what I would call our first, you know, openly white president, you know, in Donald Trump. You know, and then you have 80 plus percent of white evangelicals voting. Right. And then like I'll explain, like for me, so much of my work was around white evangelicalism, trying to talk about race, trying to talk about intercultural. Race. So to f- see that for me was just like, oh, I've been wasting my time. Um, but I'm curious, how do you sustain faith in in this? in this very questionable era that we that we live in, where where we don't even have a, a, a basis for truth. We don't even have a, 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 mm. a common ground for facts, right? If you mm. say, well, no, this is what I believe is fact, this is science, somebody will quickly come. No, mm-mm, nope, nope, the earth is flat, scientifically proven. Well, what do you mean? No, no, the earth is round, nope. So I'm curious, like, what say you?
1: Yeah, this is definitely a very discombobulating time that can either lead us toward um, ignorance Mm -hmm. or it could force us to push into the suffering. What I've learned in my work, so in continuing that story from experiencing the suffering of um, my mother's cancer and learning to love in a violent world, that's what... uh, that's what I began to learn as I started doing more international work as a photographer is I was, I would travel to all these different countries, go in and out of homes, go in and out of places, go in and out of stories, hearing the worst of the worst. And as I started to hear more stories of issues of sexual violence, that's when I felt I've heard it all. (laughs) And the worst the worst thing I think in the world is, is a violation, sexual violation of a woman's body, especially at the hands of religiosity, patriarchy, which we hear a lot of that of as well. And um, in hearing those really difficult stories full of suffering, of course, there is the choice where I could be like, okay, I want to be ignorant to these stories and just do my job, capture the story and leave or, I could choose to push into that suffering to reimagine what could come out of it. What good, what beauty, what uh, surprisingly transformative moment might come out of this suffering. Uh And so I changed my career and went from international documentary filmmaker to now nonprofit leader supporting survivors of sexual violence in their academic dreams. And what I found is that survivors of sexual violence are without a doubt, the most courageous, uh-huh. the most resilient, the most powerful because they hold on to hope. And through their through their lives and journeying through the trajectory of their lives for the past 10 years and seeing the ebb and flow, what remains the constant is that resilient um, hope toward reaching these audacious dreams that, uh-huh. Society has told them that they cannot do it. They still hold to that. They still hold on to that light and that hope. And that is what has allowed their dreams to actually come into fruition within time. And so I look at their example for literally everything in my life. And Mm. so even in this really difficult season with the pandemic, with um, racism, with people neglecting to notice that black lives matter, it's like the most odd thing to me. Um, What I've, Observed is that survivors of sexual violence have been through it all. They've been through the worst of the worst. Yet, if they can choose to hold on to hope, if they can choose to live another day, if they can choose to advocate against their oppressor and their perpetrator and their rapist another day, then I could also choose to speak up for what is right, that I could choose to also advocate for Black Lives Matter another day, that I could choose to, um, you know, within reason, educate the white oppressors in the ways that they will hear um, but then also realizing, like you said, of, of this letting go of realizing there's also so much that they and their God has to, has to determine for them. That It's not me to, to dictate or to control or to convince, but to, but to love. And I think working with survivors has really taught me how to love better
0: uh-huh. and
1: to be um, audacious in loving better with hope and resilience
0: wow that's i like that i mean that's that's a that's a great picture i mean it's a great reference point right i mean if, if you know looking at that and looking at right because it's so easy i mean i think you know especially in quarantine right it's very easy to uh get caught up with our own narrative and just our own kind of just what's in front of us mm-hmm. but you know you having that reference point of somebody who's been through something so hellish that you know can't even imagine uh, but still holding on to hope um What's some of the work you do with the with the nonprofit? I'm I'm curious. Is this faith based? Is non faith based? Or a mixture? Uh, how does how does that come together for you?
1: Yeah. So our nonprofit is called Freely in Hope. We equip survivors of sexual violence to lead in ending the cycle of sexual violence. It is faith based, but our programs are not overtly faith. based you know, like Christian, whatever. Um, How we work is that um, we fund high school and university scholarships. So in Kenya and Zambia, primary education is considered free. But when you go to high school, there's tuition fees on top of that for so for families who are living on less than $1 a day with eight children in the house, most likely the girls will not be allowed to go to school because they can't afford it. And so we try to bridge that gap by funding scholarships for girls who are survivors of sexual violence and also vulnerable to sexual violence as we've seen that education can help to prevent sexual violence in many ways if they're learning in safe spaces. And so, what we've learned early on too is that funding scholarships does not is not the end all. Like funding scholarships is not the way to bring people into liberation. That's mm. one of the ways, mm. but in addition, mm. we also need to ensure that they're living in a safe place, that their perpetrator yeah. isn't coming around knocking mm. on the door, attempting to rape them, uh, attempting to rape them again. Uh, we need to ensure that they have the mental health support that they need by funding counseling and therapy and different forms of therapy that work best for that individual person. Uh, we also fund healthcare as sexual violence has a lot of other, a slew of other issues that usually arise um, both immediately after the the incident and also later on. And so, healthcare, long term healthcare, is essential as well for ensuring they have everything that they need to thrive academically. And so, in providing all of those things, we also have noticed that. When, they, when survivors are, have the opportunity to go to school and they have the resources that they need to live and work and study in a safe place, then their autonomy comes back, their dreams come back, and they realize that they can do something with their education. And many of these girls want to use their education for the sake of someone else helping others and helping their community thrive and and also be released from poverty so that no other girl will have to go through the same violence that they endured. And so this big picture thinking of what I've seen of survivors in Kenya and Zambia is what really challenged me to switch careers and to dedicate my life to ensuring that their dreams are funded because it's so much bigger than what my initial dream was for myself. Yeah. and with that uh, big dream, uh, we feel that they're the best ones to lead us into that dream. And so we teach them different leadership development programs. We teach them public speaking, program design. Uh, we teach them basic wow. counseling and trauma healing to ensure that when they go out into the community, they're the ones that are fully equipped, fully empowered with the resources and knowledges, knowledge and tools that they need uh, to, to lead in the spaces that they uh, will lead best in because they came from those exact same spaces. They practice their leadership skills through what we call storytelling platforms. And that's where they go into the community to teach and speak on sexual violence prevention. Our alumni and our, and our scholars have designed brilliant programs. One of our alumni started a program called Malkia, which is Swahili for queen. And she goes into certain slums. We work in the Sinai slum right now and teaches women in prostitution that they have the option to say no and that they can find other ways of livelihood and she trains them on those ways of livelihood. It's a two year long program. Now you can't bring a woman out of prostitution overnight and a lot of programs fail to realize the long-term investment and relationships that it takes to build trust within this demographic that have been violently wounded so many times before. And so that program reaches out to now 20 women in teaching them on entrepreneurship, on parenting, on um, sexual and reproductive health, on even personal autonomy and decision-making so that they can choose, do I want to say yes to this client tonight or do I want to say no? And how do I start saying no more frequently so I can actually live into the vocation that I desire for myself? Yes. Giving women an option and a choice is, is one of the primary uh, components of that program. We have another program called ADNEZA, which means make it known in Swahili, and that teaches... Uh, 3,000 students per month on sexual violence prevention in high schools. So all of these initiatives have been designed and led by survivors of sexual violence themselves. And we feel that they're the best ones to lead us into mm-hmm. the sense of liberation that we hope to see in the world.
0: I like that. And I and we definitely want to get back to that liberation. I know that's something that you talk a lot about it, you know, in your book. And, and I want to get to that here in a second. I like that the systemic change. I mean, I think so often, mm-hmm. right? especially with a lot of missionary work and it's starting to change a little bit, but you know, it's always just been, let's get them saved. And anything that comes after that is, eh, but let's just get them saved. And I mean, you're talking about a holistic approach to a, to a a person's life because you're right. I mean, I can't imagine the amount of trauma. I mean, I've, I was diagnosed years ago with post-traumatic stress disorder from growing up in just a violent community, right? You know, seeing people getting killed and all mm-hmm. this—I can't imagine the the you know the amount of trauma that exists in somebody who's been sexually perpetrated against you know like that. And so, mm. whoo, that's deep. I mean, that's that's deep and it's heavy. How? Try to think, because I got like five questions that just rushed into my head. But um, when it when it comes to dealing with sexual violence oftentimes right you know you hear about women how is how has it affected men and did any men come through this at, at, at all or, or or how does that engage at any rate you know with that I'd be curious
1: yeah so the global statistic is one in three women have experienced sexual violence one in six men So men are not very far from the data points. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I believe if we approach the world understanding that one in three women, one in six men have experienced sexual violence, then we would change the way we lead. We would change the way we talk. We would change the way we have our programs and churches and community organizations and corporations. It would really change our perspective. Yet, people don't want to acknowledge that this is a problem. Yeah. And because they don't acknowledge that it's a problem, it will continue the cycle. Now, there, there are studies on young boys that have been sexually violated that that violence sometimes is re-perpetuated because they're trying to reclaim their power and their sense of, what yeah. they consider manhood yeah. considering they thought it was taken away from them because of the violence. Now, that those studies um, can, can speak for itself. And I think different people will, will say different things about what that means. But what I believe is, yes, I believe that's true because people who've experienced brokenness will not know how to repair that brokenness. And sometimes they do so in violent ways. Hurt people hurt people, right? And so in that way, if we see it more as a spiritual moral issue, Um, I think we can start, and and actually not as a taboo issue any longer, right? We can start mending a lot of this brokenness that stays silent, especially in the church. It stays so silent. And that's what keeps the cycle going. I think the other harmful thing that has perpetuated sexual violence, um, both against women and men, is the role of patriarchy. Where because of toxic masculinity and toxic patriarchy, um, men believe that in order to exert their manlihood, they have to exert that power over somebody else, whether it be another boy or another girl, and that is what keeps us in this cycle of violence. And so, the man's role in ending sexual violence is to undo patriarchy and to, instead of perpetuating violence against someone, actually feel the emotions of fear underneath the violence, underneath that struggle, because I believe under every fear, uh, under every angry or violent outburst is a fear of the other or a fear of losing something or a fear of having their ego exposed or a fear of not being enough. And so they somehow need to exert that power over someone else. And so that needs to be taught in more circles, especially in men, male specific circles. We look at churches and we see how many women's groups there are about women, live into your destiny yeah. believe in yourself. Yeah, but Who's telling us not to believe in ourselves? It's the men, right? <laughs> right so men yeah. men need to have their own little Bible study and say, okay, how can we undo the violence of patriarchy that is not only causing violence against women, but it's calling causing violence against men who are unable to live into the full expression of who they're meant to be mm-hmm. because society has told them that they need to be something else.
0: I love that. I love that because it's something that I know... As someone like myself who identifies, you know, as a cis male and having grown up in and around it, even though I was raised by two women and brought up and seen, you know, all the things they had to go through and struggle with, there's still that line of toxic masculinity. I always call myself, I'm a recovering sexist. And, 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 and I, I have to place myself in that because it is an ideology that goes much deeper and i think you know particularly for men and i always this is what i always tell my students like whatever conversation we're having on race and equity and equality you can in 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 some cases especially here in the u.s you can subtract almost a century and that's pretty much where we're at with our conversations around gender Mm -hmm. um around sexuality and especially women who are in control of their own sexuality, right? I mean, I think about, mm-hmm. you know, I do a lot of work on hip-hop and stuff, and so, you know, looking at somebody like Cardi B, and the line can go on, right? I mean, you can look at somebody like Madonna mm-hmm. in the 80s. When she first came out on the MTV Music yeah. Awards in the 80s, people done lost their shit, right? It was people who like, oh, my gosh, and she's this and then that, and oh, my gosh. Meanwhile, you have heavy metal bands that are coming out and you got, you know, half scantily dressed women parading all over them. And everybody's saying, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I want to be a rock and roll star. Mm -hmm. So that double negative, right, gets embedded um, into our, you know, our media, media psyche. Right. And so these are some of the questions Mm -hmm. I have asked myself along with my students. Like, what are some of the messages you receive when it comes to Mm -hmm. who prepares the, you know, the, the meal? You know, what What do you see in commercials? What do you see in television sitcoms? You know, even person of color yeah. sitcoms. I not even, you know, you don't even have to go white. I mean, who is the person, right, who runs that? And what are those roles? How have you navigated some of those things in the church as a woman, as a, an ethnic minority woman? How have you had some of those conversations? And then second, the second part of that, because I know organizations like this, it's, it's great and sexy when they're on the when we're at the galas and getting all the money and stuff like that but when the rubber meets the road, I found that funding starts to get real tight when because people's right people's sexuality and stuff you know you got to start calling out the patriarchy mm-hmm. right it's like when you start talking about mm-hmm. hey that locker room talk bruh. that's exactly you can't you, you got to change yeah, that so how have you navigated those areas and and how's that then in turn connected back with funding?
1: That's an excellent question, and I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. So
1: I, I was very lucky growing up growing up in the Salvation Army denom- denomination. We do ordain women. Okay. So I was able to grow up seeing my auntie uh, who pastored our church as a woman
0: That's great. Uh,
1: preach on Sunday. So I saw that, and it was the norm, right? It wasn't until I got out of my church and started fundraising in other churches that I realized, oh, wait, other churches don't let women speak in public? Like, I, I, was, I was baffled. So in entering in those spaces, that's when I would see little subtle things like, oh, yeah, you can speak to the women's Bible study. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I will, <laughs> but can I also speak to the church? Because I got a message to share. Right, Maybe right. You can only speak to the, right? So that's when I started realizing, oh, not everyone believes that I as a woman can be at the pulpit. And so I had to... Um, kind of not adjust, but just understand that because I didn't yeah. understand that previously. What I have found, I will say, in the past 10 years that I've been doing this is that partnering with churches um, has been a straw goal. I don't know what it is and that's why like, this is a really great question that I've been wrestling with myself because I don't know if it's because of the content of what we talk about. I don't know if people want to see issues of sexual violence as a human trafficking issue, not Uh a patriarchy issue and that's the thing. A lot of people deem us as an anti-trafficking organization because they can't they cannot fathom the trafficking thing. Well, pe- well people are like stolen and right, moved, not right. realizing that same movement is happening locally. Yeah. Like they're just misinformed. So that, that um, I guess, extravagant movement um, where these evil people over there, those pimps mm-hmm. are doing yeah. this very evil work. Yeah. They don't talk about the Johns because those are the Johns right. that are sitting on your pulpit putting tithes Ooh, and offering okay. in church. All right. So, Come on. This is what we talk about. Issues of sexual violence is trafficking is um is uh sexual violence in terms of not allowing women to preach in the church is in condemning women um in the church for dressing a certain way. We've even seen stories of women um in prostitution coming have forced to come up in front of the church to apologize for being in prostitution. Um in issues where uncles, pastors, fathers are raping their children. We've mm. seen all of that. And religious leaders are, are kind of untouchable. And so because you cannot tell the, the religious leader what to do or how to right. behave, right. they are the mini-gods that then dictate how their churches run, which is yeah. actually continuing to violate and to oppress women and girls in the church. And so a lot of these conversations that I have with churches, if they do want to dig into it, which many of them don't, um, they're just <laughs> right. kind of, again, baffled because they can't imagine that a pastor would violate yeah. another woman. Mm-hmm. And here we are with, you know, I can name all the names. Willow Creek, uh, Ravi Zacharias is a, is a new one that I just learned about. Yeah, come on. Um, I, can't, I can go on and on, right? The Bill Hybels and all of that. So if we fail to recognize the issue of patriarchy, it's going to escalate. And your saviors and your religious leaders are not as pure as you think they are. (laughs) And so we need to talk about it so that it doesn't trickle down, ending up offending and hurting your children.
0: That, yes, absolutely. Because, that you know, that cycle, right, like you said, it, it just it just continues. And I think so. Let me ask you this. So. The Me Too movements. This is a conversation that comes up a lot in class I teach a course on social media The family and friends And so, you know, we spend a few weeks Just looking at how gender constructs are developed Right, and I call the family the original F word Whether we love them or hate them And everything in between, you know, right Our family gives us our our reference points for so much And so, um, I lost my train of thought. I hate when that happens because like I said, I'm thinking of four different Gingly. things. I'm thinking of four different things. Um, Oh, I was going to ask about that. Uh, I'm sure it'll come, it'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. Let me ask you this. Um, In in regards to patriarchy, in regards to, because I think, and the reason I'm asking these in particular because I think these are the areas that I, I don't think enough people gather around and, and understand raising a daughter who's now 14 and for example just body image her body image that is powerful right because nickelodeon is sending messages about what a young girl should look like and it didn't that didn't hit me right until she was like five years old and i'm like wait because i'm thinking oh this is okay this is kids stuff and they'll you know that's okay and then i'm watching and i'm like wait a minute No, wait a minute. Right. You know what I'm saying? About how a young girl should look, how she should act, what she should wear, what you should show. Um, Mm. Oh, that's what I was going to say. So, the Me Too movement, right? That's how have you navigated some of those conversations? Because one of the pushbacks that I get is, and this ties into what I was just saying you know, this is just a witch hunt. Like, it's just, it's too much. It's like, you know, as men, we can't even, we can't even say anything anymore. Like, I just want to compliment a woman and and why I got to be a, a rapist. after that? How have you navigated some of those ideological structures? Because I see this coming up. This came up in a conversation like two months ago uh, with a colleague of mine and like, oh, I just feel like, you know, just everything's just off limits now. And I just, I feel as men were just hated on, you know, just that women just hate us now. And you know, it's just, it's all because of these, you know, these feminists. This is what this person was saying. No, so I did, those, those
1: feminists. Those yeah.
0: feminists, right. So have you navigated some of this, especially being a woman of color and all those intersections, oh, right, that come together with that?
1: Oh, God. I have story after story after story. Oh, I know you do. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I will say it's like men are so fragile. I know we are. That I know. That any anything I know. that's different than what you <laughs> knew before is somehow is somehow the worst that could ever happen to you, and mm-hmm. it's like we've been living in under your oppression and authority for forever, and now that the tables are. Finally, you know, the conversation is being turned, not that the tables have been turned, but we're trying to, you know, trying to rise up into our uh, God ordained positions as leaders, as women, Um, men and their fragile egos can't imagine a different reality. And so it starts with imagining what would it look like if I actually believe that women were made in the image of God. Mm. What would it look like? And that's what men fail to see because they're going to bring out all the other scripture that Paul said, blah, blah, what oh, said this, Lord. and women said this, and women said that. Yeah. And it's like, okay, mutual submission. Anyway, <laughs> that's another conversation. Um, I had an experience, I was at this evangelical gathering where we were creating a very important statement um, during election season um, that was an anti Anti-Trump, um, anti-patriarchy, uh, anti-white supremacy statement, and I was with very huge evangelical leaders. I will na- I will not name names. All right, okay. all right. But here I am, like super. I'm I'm usually the youngest in those crowds, and like probably the more new to this world of evangelicalism. Um, I grew up in a very insular, you know, denomination. Salvation Army is very insular, and we don't really talk to other denominations. So I'm still like learning, hey, wait, this denomination branched from this one and then this one became this. Why? Okay, like it's all very foreign to Mm -hmm, me. mm -hmm. And so I'm, in this new space, not really knowing where I'm supposed to be. And we were having these conversations among 40 people, public conversations with 40 people. So there was a lot bouncing back and forth. And as we started talking about patriarchy, one of the women said, we can't talk about patriarchy without talking about sexism in the church. And if we're going to attempt to create this public document that dismantles patriarchy, we have to talk about sexism because it's related. And we have to talk about sexual violence. And she started sharing how there were there have been multiple incidences where um, authorities uh, pastors would make advances at her and only offer her promotions if they off- if if she uh, if she slept with them, right? So all the women in their head are like, uh. all the women in the room are like nodding their heads because right. that has happened to them too. Mm-hmm. If they are going to rise up in authority, it comes at some cost of a sexual favor. And so she like shares this and like you can see the men, some of the men are starting to like cower in their seats. And then as time moved on, we started figuring out, okay, how do we address patriarchy with sexism and all these other nuances of it. Um, One of the very prominent evangelical leaders um, jokingly made a comment about how, you know, kind of what you said, like the times have changed and like, and like, I can't even say that my friend over here has sexy legs, but she does have sexy legs. And we were like, did you not just hear everything that just happened? So I was was really caught because that was just so offensive to all the women in the room. And for me, so my work is primarily in advocating with survivors of sexual violence. So Uh all the other things, all the other spheres that happens in evangelicalism, whatever. But my primary work is in advocacy. And I was really caught and I was thinking, oh my God, what do I do? Because if I... Claim to be an advocate. I need to say something to this brother. So I went up to him and I was like, Look, uh, I just wanted to let you know that that was inappropriate. And like, I totally understand where you're coming from. It's a different generation, but where we are now we are trying to see women as more than sexy legs. Like, yes, we can have sexy legs, but to only comment on that and not our rhetoric or not our, you know, our ability to speak or whatever it is, like, there's so many different things and you're only commenting on that. We're, we're not moving forward. Right. And he was so dismissive and so, like, he couldn't have the conversation. He walked away from me. So then I was like, okay, wow. I tried to have it privately. Wow. It didn't work privately. So yeah. So... When I have the opportunity to do it publicly, I'm going to have to say something. And I was like thinking of all of my girls who have so bravely stood up in court full of men, full of people who wanted them dead, and they they would still speak their truth. And so again, it's like that's where the courage of survivors continually emboldened me to speak out against Mm. all these little injustices because if, if they can choose to stand up in court, I can choose to speak out against this man. And uh, even at the expense of, you know, having endorsements in the future or having speaking opportunities in the future, it's like, yeah, I need to know I, I need to do what's right, because if you don't want to have me because you're afraid of what I'm going to say, then it's not the
0: right fit. That's yeah, oh, Nicole, you said you, you you said a mouthful on that. I mean, I think that that I mean, it's OK. OK, so this is this is right. This is where the rubber meets the road, because a lot of us who and I and, you know, I have a job, a full time paycheck coming in, but working for a nonprofit Christian environment Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily yield the type of income (laughs) that could help afford a mortgage and all the other things, right. That go with that. Um, Chicago, I think is, you know, 3% away cost of living, uh, from Los Angeles With you know, our, our, all all the, all things are going up even during the pandemic. Right. I mean, the stuff is, is going up. My neighbor, you know, struggled for four months trying to sell his house, a nice house. Um, but, you know, it was like $480,000. I was like, wait a minute, $480,000. So my point in all this is the speaking, the the consulting, all of those things, I'm not going to name no names either. I'm with you. But i like, man, I've been at this game now for over two decades. And I feel like so many folks Will lessen what they have to say or lessen who they are, who I feel like they are, knowing them. Yeah. In order to get a paycheck. And I'm just like, wow. Yeah. And especially on these touchy things, right? I mean, you're talking about something that is hitting a nerve. It's like an exposed nerve in a tooth. It's like you eat an ice cream and that stuff just hits that tooth, and you're like, ah man. Yeah. Um uh, my gosh. Yeah, um, and, and what are some of the things now that you are doing? I mean, obviously, you're part of the nonprofit. You're in grad school. You're almost done. How are you navigating grad school? I mean, how are you navigating a place? I mean, I just keep it real. I mean, I've been an open critic of Fuller on this show, so, um, you know, and I always tell people, like, look, shit, I'm, I'm tenured and a full professor, so I say what the hell I want. Um, how have you navigated a place like Fuller? Because I find them problematic on so many levels. So I'm, I'm curious.
1: Oh God! I hope that my words will not be used against me because I am finishing my final two courses.
0: Okay, all right, all right.
1: As my mama says, get the degree and run. I know, I know, because I've I've spoken openly with them about these things, and it's like hello. Anyway, it's like when institutions, any institution, it could be your church, it could be your corporation, whatever. When institutions say that they They um, value and affirm diversity, but only in words and not actually in action. I'm always like, okay, well, I don't feel affirmed and valued. So let me tell you so that you can stay true to your word. I want to believe you that when you say that, (laughs) you actually mean that you want to value and affirm diversity. Okay. So I will keep you accountable to ensure that you do because I believe you. Now, maybe that's me being very naive, but at the same time, if you say it, I'm going to believe you until you prove me otherwise. So at Fuller and in a lot of these other institutions where when they say these things, I move forward as my full self as if you're going to believe me because you said that you want to, right? So at Fuller, I have had multiple conversations with multiple deans, multiple professors on the, um, oh God, how do I even like <clears throat> put this all summarize, summarize, but on, on the, the, the blatant white supremacy and patriarchy. It's inherent in the system, whether it be from the books we're reading to the way our classes are structured to the way that uh, the teachers speak to students of color and women. I called all those things out, and I, and huh. very respectfully, was like, "Look, when this happened, I felt that it was inappropriate." There was a there was a time in one of our classes where we were talking, where we're, well, we were studying um, Soon Chong Ra's book uh-huh. and talking about, yeah, the issue of diversity of just being getting all these diverse people together, but still, who holds the uh, who holds the, the rule book is the the white man, right? Yeah. So we were talking about those things. And as one of the students who is a white man was talking about it, he, he was chuckling. He was laughing. He was belittling the content of the conversation. And he said, well, I know this is all really heavy right now. So we're just going to take a fun break and play a game in the middle of his presentation. And we played a game in the middle of his presentation. I was so offended that I couldn't say anything in public because I was so offended that I told the professor later on. I was like, look, when that happened, what needed to happen is you as the authority right. should have called him out and whatever. And everything everything that I said has been dismissed, both privately and publicly at Fuller. And I've told them multiple times, and I will say it again on this podcast, they are dismissive and they do not value or affirm the dignity or the ideas of people of color, students at least. I don't know about professors because I have some professor friends that are there, but if you're still there, that's on you. <laughs>
0: Oh, Nicole. I mean that. And that's just it. I mean, I, you know, I've told the story before. It's like, you know, a few years back, they they approached me for the, you know, the position for I think it was the this was before they hired the brother who just left. And I think Dwight just took over the African-American studies professor program or something like that. So they approached me about that before and I was like, look, before we even gonna get to the table, say, Oh, would you be, you know how you know how white folks always try to approach you with, all oh, this opportunity. I was like, Look, y'all niggas could have had me, you know, saying, you know, ten years ago, but y'all niggas wanted to drag y'all's feet. And I'm talking just like this. Like I'm talking to you, and I'm just like, Look, I ain't gonna be bitter about it's it, still but what's happening? Right. And I'm just like, Look, I'm I'm tenured now. I'm I I got built up. I mean ten years ago I was a little bit more of a scrub and stuff, man. You know, it's like you did you didn't want me when I was still, you know, working working the, the 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 side gigs. But now that I'm all pretty and jeweled up and everything, now y'all wanna I was like, nah, nah <laughs> now you, you come
1: running. Right. Now. now
0: you wanna put a ring on it? No. Uh uh-uh. uh so I was like, look, before we even have the conversation, I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm not moving anywhere unless my tenure and full professorship comes. Well, you know, no one does that And then I just go through the list of people I'm just like, look, I got receipts All these people who came over with tenure and full like, If that's not even going to be the question And I think just on the academic side To have that Because I was just like, look, if I come I am pro-LGBTQ I don't believe in that I'm not an evangelical to begin with um, you know, I believe all the Abrahamic faiths have you know, uh, uh authority and, and they also have crap in them as well. Whoop, you know, nothing like do, 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 you know, like you have reached the wrong number. So I feel you on that a lot. And what do you make? Because again, I want your book is powerful, and I and I love it because. You talk about liberation is here. What, is, what does that mean in the midst of all the shit we're dealing with right mm-hmm. now, Nicole? And you and you give the three stories, which I'm not going to give away. Y'all need to go get the book. If you're listening, I'll put all this stuff in the show notes. Go buy the book. We need to support people of color, women of color who are putting material mm-hmm. out there. People always talk about, oh, well, what do you got? Here's another resource, y'all. Another resource. But what do you mean by <laughs> liberation is here? Talk yeah. to me.
1: Yeah, so Liberation is Here, my book is about my journey of realizing that those who've experienced the most violent forms of oppression have the potential to become the most powerful liberators mm. in our work, in our world, in our communities, in our schools, in our institutions. And our role is to amplify those voices and to allow those leadership trajectories to take place. Um, And so this journey is where I've realized that through a a series of many mistakes, many burnouts, many failures, many um, successes as well, in seeing that everything always came back to the leadership of survivors and how that leadership is actually what's going to bring about liberation in our world. Because their vision, their dreams, their their hopes, that what they see in the future world Uh. is so much more beautiful than I could ever dream of myself. And without following their vision, we will perish, no doubt. And so it's up to us as advocates to allow that process to take place. Um, And that's why I believe liberation is here. It's already here. It's just that we're not letting those people lead us into that sense of liberation. Um, And it's found within the most unexpected places, the most marginalized, which is, as Malcolm X said, the black woman.
0: Mm. I love that the way you express that and the way you put that. I mean, that for me is is a good different way of looking at it, because I think oftentimes and I'll speak for myself, I can, you know, consume. Right, the same way that we consume everything else, right, in, in, in Western society. It's like we want to see results right away. It's like, okay, I did these three things. I wanna be able to see some tangible, qualitative, quantitative metric that this is changing. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about the intangible. You're talking about the the, mm-hmm. the 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 greater you just said it, right? You was like, you know, you can't change somebody who's been a part of sexual violence like overnight. I mean, that's just not mm-hmm. going to happen. And you've obviously been able to tell these stories and, and talk about that, so I mean, it definitely gives a good sense of what hope can look like in the midst of a lot of shit, um, and mm-hmm. that's that's powerful. And again, I don't want to give away the premise of the book. How 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 what what I I can imagine just by what we've been talking about is what prompted you. But what was the genesis behind this book? Because I know as an author myself, there's always a story <laughs> behind every book, and why IVP. Uh.
1: Yeah, good question. Um, when I first started my career in in nonprofit work, um, again, because I was a f- documentary filmmaker, I didn't know anything. I don't know how to fundraise. I didn't know how to speak in public. I didn't <laughs> know how to talk to churches. Like I didn't know any of it. I was 20 years old as mm. well, fresh out of college, trying to figure out my own personal life together with Absolutely. the lives of the survivors that I was serving, and so... I found myself on the public platform speaking and preaching a lot because that's how, you know, we got the word out to fundraise for the work that we were doing. And at different conferences that I would speak at, different publishers would come up to me and say, you know, would you want to publish because we need more authors of color because they needed more authors of color. I don't think they really cared about my story because (laughs) they would also try to like kind of push and say, like, tell the story this way. Have you heard of these books? And most of the books that they would reference would be like Kisses for Katie, which is a very Missionary, you know, mindset, uh, go white girl going into Uganda and adopting all these babies, yeah, (laughs) which is beautiful, but that is not my experience. So, um, as time moved on and I kept getting all these people coming up to me, I was like, "Mm, I don't have a story to tell because the story is the survivor's story. And if you want to publish a book, ask them, they'll gladly want to publish a book with you, you know, yeah, and um. Coming into, you know, our 10th year, this is our 10th year. So coming into like our 8th year, um, a lot of my girls were reminding me like, hey, you're the one getting all the speaking opportunities. You're the one getting all these podcast interviews. You're the one preaching on public platforms. How will you use your platform and your voice and your experience on behalf of us even more so? And this is why your story now needs to be told in context of ours. And they were the ones pushing me to write this book because I had never before told my story in the process of their story, right? Yeah. And as I started writing, I started to see how hard it was to even recognize what my story was. Mm -hmm. And without recognizing my own story, I think I I wouldn't have as much um, understanding in terms of how my story aligns with theirs in many ways. Um, In many ways we are different but I believe if we only focus on the differences where I'm not a survivor of rape, where I'm Chinese American and they're African, um, I grew up in the suburbs and they grew up in the slums and, you know, like all these differences. If we keep focusing on those differences, then we fail to recognize what brings us together in our common humanity. And that shared suffering is mm. what can move us forward into mm. liberation. And so my recognition of that is what they were telling me. You need to tell that journey and that trajectory, just as you've helped us tell our story. What is yours? And I'm like, uh, let me get back to you on that. So the book is my story of um, recognizing that people in oppression have the potential to become the most powerful liberators. And it's in told in context of the stories of those three women where I recognize it through their story and how their stories in their telling me their stories. That's where I realized that I was being liberated in the process. Um, and so I was beginning to find my own sense of transformation, even as I was working so hard to allow them to transform their lives
0: wow see this is this is great this is a beautiful thing i like this this is this is a good breakdown i mean because you're right i mean you know once you start putting pen to paper i guess in our case well again i'll speak for myself i'm not sure what you did but i typed mine on a laptop rather than actually writing everything out you know what i'm saying but it does it you you know you ask the question well i asked the question it's like man what what am i going to say for 200 pages what am i gonna say and that's going to make sense and it does it does challenges Mm -hmm. i like that too i mean that's that's come up numerous times you you said the people that you're working with who say you know you're you're the kind of the face of this it's like what are you how are you going to handle this and that for me at least well yes exactly and it's a lot i feel like it's a lot of responsibility um Mm -hmm. cornell west
1: and and mm -hmm. no Mm -hmm. go ahead Yeah, I think also that responsibility is what made me shy away from doing it as well because um, there there are many ways that this has been done wrong. Yeah. Where the foreigner coming into, it's always Africa, some developing (laughs) land of Africa, (laughs) uh, the the country, (laughs) Africa. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Some foreigner would come in and try to change and modify and bring good, and I... I am that right. I am the foreigner coming into Kenya and Zambia. Yet, I wanted my perspective to be different than what other um, mainstream evangelical white missionaries are telling because it. I feel like it is different, right? And I know that my community experiences as di- experiences it as different. However, articulating that was the challenge because easily someone can be like, "Oh, someone working in Africa, very cool," you know, and immediately it becomes, "Wow, it's so great to see the work that you're doing." And I'm like. Did you read my book? Because it's not even about me. Yes, the book is about me, yeah. but it's about how yeah. the, the most violent, uh, the, those who have experienced oppression can be the liberators. And they are the ones that have saved me from my ego. And if we could all be saved from our ego, I think that's how we're going to build a better world that collaborates in tandem with survivors and the marginalized and the oppressed.
0: That's, that's exactly, exactly. I love this. This is a great perspective, Nicole. I, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, uh, yeah, I, again, I have so many more questions, but I know our time is now. I don't want to keep it. I know you—you are moving and grooving, and you got those two classes to finish. So, uh, you know, get, you get to get am <laughs> Trying, stuff. I'm struggling out here. <laughs> I hear that. Um, Let me
1: graduate Fuller.
0: That's right. That's right. Give me my paper. Give me my paper. <laughs> oh,
1: I'm paying my school fees begrudgingly, but oh, I'm
0: paying. Man. Oh. Oh gosh. Yes. That after I got through with my PhD and it was like a couple years out and I and then I started realizing how much Fuller didn't do for my own professional development I actually went hey. back and sat down with the dean and was just and just for like an hour and just ranted I was like what the hell I paid five thousand dollars a class plus books no. and. Oh, no. Anyways. um,
1: It's busy work, y'all. Yeah, it's busy work, y'all. If you're looking at Fuller, talk to us first. Because yes. <laughs> yes. They, they make you busy. They just make you push papers around and they, they make you busy. I didn't even have a thesis. Imagine. Wow. You probably had to because in your doctorates, yeah, the Masters in Global Leadership Program does not require a thesis. I
0: had to ask for one in my program because I knew I wanted to go out and get a PhD. So I was like, I, I, I literally oh. had to ask for one.
1: OK, then if I get my PhD later I have to do that anyway <laughs>
0: <laughs> you already got See the book I, mean?
1: I didn't know
0: you got the book you got the book you you hooked up uh, I'll co-sign on it um what is uh so Thanks. two things what is what is what is driving you and giving you hope right now in the next decade and and and' I'll, I'll preface it this way um I know we're just met I I, I think a lot about so I keep a, a strong pulse on astronomy and astrophysics and like the James Webb telescope that's, that's up, that's supposed to detect life on, on other planets and whatnot and blah, blah, blah. Right. So they're saying, you know, by the mid 20, by 2024, they want to put boots on the moon again. And by 2028, 2030, we want to go to Mars, which I've long held that, uh, you know, there were ancient civilizations on those, those places. That's for another podcast. Uh, and I'll okay. cite my references for that. Um, it's me, <laughs> but, <laughs> But what do you see in these next ten years? People are saying, you know, the pandemic has rechanged everything. Uh, what is giving you hope uh, moving forward? And uh, where can people find you when they want to give you that honorarium for a hundred thousand? Yeah,
1: I I will receive it with open arms. There you go. <laughs> oh man, what what gives me hope is the the vision of the survivors in my community. Like I said through their vision, we will be able to be liberated, we will be able to thrive and without that we will perish. And I believe that wholeheartedly that if we can really see a collaboration of people banding together to support this vision of survivors of ending sexual violence in the world, that's where our world can become more whole and more beautiful. And I think even as much as like all my conversation is very specific to issues of sexual violence, I think that translates to everything. Right, Like the sexism issue, the racial discrimination issue, like seeing each other as humans, as individuals worthy to be cared for and loved in ways that um, uplift them in their authority and leadership. That's where we can really see all of us come together as in our common humanity to, to thrive. And my hope is that this pandemic has really exposed how our ego gets in this, gets in the way of human flourishing. Uh, not wearing a mask simply, right? (laughs) is because we are selfish and we are thinking about our own breathing rather than the breathing of someone else that might be immunocompromised. Um, And so if we can start practicing now in this pandemic to really sit still and discern what is it that God is telling me in these moments of silence and stillness and solitude? What is it that I need to do to contribute to a better world once it opens back up? And how can I be responsible for me and my body and how I live and love and lead in this world so that when, when, when we open back up again, I can lead love and live better. And to allow my love to transcend into ways that are, transformative and life-giving rather than Mm. oppressive and violent. Mm. Um, I think that's where we're going to go to, but we have to realize the gifts of the pandemic as terrible and frustrating and exhausting as it is. um, I think in noticing the gifts of it, that's what will allow us to enter back into the world um, much more healed so that we can, heal and heal others instead of hurt and hurt others because of our own hurt so may this pandemic offer more healing Wow! To everyone
0: I like that that's good I'll take it I can always take more healing where can folks find you like the you know want to bring you out and then you know all that all that good stuff
1: yeah well I'm doing all the virtual events now so holler at your girl um I have a whole studio set up so What's I'll up? make sure that it looks and sounds nice um Yeah, you can hit me up uh, through Instagram, Nicole, N-I-K-O-L-E underscore Lim. Um, Email Nicole, N-I-K-O-L-E, at freelyinhope.org. And you can support our work at Freely in Hope by visiting our website and becoming a Hope Circle member, which is our monthly givers program that literally encircles our scholars with the support that they need to thrive. Everything from tuition fees to tutoring, to healthcare, to mental health support, to safe housing, all of those elements support our scholars so that they can truly find healing within themselves and thrive in their academics and become the leaders that we know they could be and liberate our world. And so I hope that you will be a part of that trajectory by visiting freelyandhope.org.
0: That's what's up. That is what's up. And again, if you're listening, no matter what you're doing, Whitehotchpodcast.com, Profane Faith, I'll put all these in the show notes. You can go there, click, and it'll take you right there, especially when it comes to monetary support. I always recommend that and, and, and try to push that for folks. Um, last question. Next Tuesday, who's going to, is Civil War number two going to begin? What, what what we got? Where we going? What's going down?
1: Uh, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly so, I've been off the news. My mom's like super avid oh, on news. God bless she's you. She's really concerned. Yeah, so she updates me because I can't watch it myself. It's no, it's yeah, too much. It is. For me to handle, I just hope whatever the outcome, we will not hurt each other more than we already have.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. <sighs> yes, I'll take that
1: either way right either way folks are gonna be angry yes
0: yes absolutely no matter what somebody's walking away extremely angry folks
1: will be angry so do not let your anger inflict violence on someone else let it be to educate and empower and inspire more movements toward justice yes um but don't don't bring violence on someone else as much as you can <sighs>
0: Yes, I like that. Yes, I like that. Nicole. i speaking
1: to myself. That's why I said it.
0: No, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking <laughs> it to myself as well. I'm just like, okay, this is, yeah, because some days, ooh, lord. Some
1: days, yeah, some days I just want to <laughs> shake somebody. Everyone who's not wearing a mask, I just want to go up to them and shake them and slap them and then slap a mask on them.
0: My daughter is always, every time we go out, she's counting like, dad, there was like, 15 people in there that weren't wearing masks I, like, I know I know I oh, know man. or they're wearing them around their chin which is I'm just like come on no, really
1: it's like that is not attractive put uh, it on a blue Right,
0: right oh gosh Nicole thank you so much for taking the time out and just having a great conversation uh, today on the show thank you so
1: much for having me I look forward to more conversations on this
0: absolutely we're gonna get you back for sure we're gonna get you back we just scratched the surface